Pardon? Oh, my wife, that's right. That's, I, you can touch me if you want to, a brush, a brush with greatness. My wife is from Waukita, Oklahoma, home of the famous movie Twister. So there you go. Though so There you go, you know. Uh, actually, there's a Twister museum if you really, I, I've not gone through it, but I am shocked at how many people say, oh, I've been to Waukita, went through the Twister museum. You're kidding. It's about the size of a phone booth, but anyhow. <laughs> Oh, a phone booth, you guys wouldn't know what that is either. Um, okay, can you hear me well enough? I, I, I don't know. Um, this may get shoved in your face more than I want it. I, I typically don't use notes for this because it's just such a passion. But I do want to try to cover some stuff that I don't um, get myself distracted. So I've got some notes in here to try to help me. This is going to sound terribly arrogant, and I know it does. I don't intend to have you have a nice little two or three sessions with me. If I don't rock your world, I failed. I'm sick and tired of bad marriages. I'm sick and tired of my assistant holding babies while I work with parents in an office. I'm sick and tired of looking at five-year-olds that I did the marriage for their parents, and they were deeply in love. And I, I remember, you know, the, the, the wedding and the white gown and the whole nine yards, and they were just great college kids. But that five-year-old girl, I am sick and tired of what happens to those kids. I honestly don't want to give you a few little tricks and gimmicks for relationships. I'd really like to knock you a little bit off the foundation this culture, even the Christian culture, has put you on because that foundation won't work. And I want you to stand on a different one. I want your five-year-old someday to be really glad you were here. I want your husband or wife to say, I don't know what happened in their background, and God uses lots of voices and lots of people, but I want your husband or wife to be able to say, this was the best thing I ever found for a partner. Right now, I can't say that. That's the culture you're in, even in Christian circles. Right now, the stats have not hardly changed at all. I, I find these a lot of different places. I've used these numbers for a while, and lo and behold, I'll find new stats, and you go, they're the same old stats. Right now, if you go down any block in America, and you knock on five homes and ask this question, do you have the kind of marriage you want your children to have? You can guess what the numbers are. Two out of five are either divorced or will divorce. The next two out of five will not divorce, but when you ask the question, is this the kind of marriage you want your children to have, they will kind of whisper and say, well, we're, we're going to stay married, but... They learn to negotiate something. They may, may even, I mean, they'll love each other at some level, but they, they know that they're living a bit of a ghost from what they ought to have and what they want to have. And so that concept basically turns out to be there's one in five that when you say, do you have the kind of marriage you want your children to have, one in five will go, yes. Now, they, even, they may have a caveat of some type, but, but yes. Why? Love should be the most natural thing in the world, we say in our culture. My goodness, you just fall in love and you fall in love with a good person and, and if you're in love, you're in love. And, and yet our culture also comes back and says, well, but doggone it, it doesn't work out so much. 
I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, and if your parents are here, please don't raise your hand. How many of you in this room, and I'm not, and again, I'm not trying to embarrass you, and if you're in an awkward spot where you couldn't raise your hand, you can ignore me and act like you, the hearing was bad. How many of you would say, I don't want to duplicate what I saw in the marriages in my family? Let me see your hands. Well over 50%. You can put your hands back down. Why? Why? Man, we've seen all the Disney movies. The Beauty and the Beast, they fall in love, and it works out wonderful. Ariel's down there, and she sees a face out of the water, and they fall in love. And, and when you're tangled, and your name's Eugene or Flynn or whatever your name is, and, and you've got mother issues, and, you know, I mean, if you can just find Flynn or Eugene and the, and the girl with the long hair, well, this will all work out great. Except it doesn't. I'm not a guru. I'm not the smartest guy you ever met. You'll figure that out pretty quickly. But here's what I have done. I've met with about pretty close to 4,000 couples in problem marriage counseling. I've married about 500 couples. I've done about 600 couples in premarital counseling. I've done this long enough. I started as somebody's minister way too early, but 1973. I've done weddings since 1973. I've got to see what happens in these generations. I've gone home and apologized to God for what I've done. Because I knew, I knew they were not now man and wife and probably never would be, at least in the healthy way. So years ago, it was a desperation that formed me to drive a stake in the ground and said no more. And so some of the things he was talking about come out of just simply me being sick and almost wanting to go home and throw up at how painful a family is that doesn't do it right. If I had known God was going to put me with all of those marriages, I, have, I sympathize with Jonah. I might have got on a ship and headed the other direction. <laughs> Who wants to do this drama nonsense this long? That's marriages. I've also been, and again, I, I need to get started here, but I've also been, most of my ministry has been in, on a college campus. It's a small college campus, five, five and a half thousand students. But I've been, two sides of that were around my office. Since 1996, I've had college kids living with me almost all the time. So I think I kind of get the college aids a little bit. When I come to a college age gathering, I always try to leave my walker outside the door. But, but uh, I kind of... So why didn't it work? Let's start with the first one. You were born like everybody else is born with the instinctive desire to love and be loved. That's instinctive. The same way that God put instincts in a whale that can migrate across an ocean with no landmarks. The same way that the, the birds can migrate. You have an instinctive desire to love and be loved. I don't care who you are, saint or scoundrel. I've been in McAllister, darkest prison. I, I've been in maximum security. And that guy wanted to love his wife. He wanted to love his kids. He wanted... I don't care who you are. Everybody has the instinctive desire to love and be loved. Here's the problem. The ability to love is not instinctive. The ability to love requires wholeness. It re requires wholeness so that when you not just reach into your heart, and I, and I know this is a little metaphoric, but instead of reaching your heart wanting to love, everybody does that. Every fool does that. Every wise person reaches in their heart and wants to love. The problem is that's not where love actually comes from. That's just good intentions and wanting to desperately. 
what you have to do is reach into, and actually biblically, I can kind of even show you this from Scripture, but you reach more into your backbone. You reach into your character to live out love. You reach into your wholeness. And if you do not have wholeness in your life, no matter how much you want to love somebody and no matter how much you feel in love with them, when you reach into your backbone to bring out what love requires, you tend to come out empty-handed. It's like digging a dry well. It's not there. To be real blunt with you, your dad wanted to love you. Your dad wanted to love you. Your dad didn't look at you as a five-year-old little girl or an eight-year-old boy or a 12-year-old boy or 14. Your dad didn't look at you and go, you're so unlovely, I don't think I really want to love you well. No, your dad wanted to love you. Your dad cried himself to sleep at nights on pillows. I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. He, he cried because he just kept failing. And he kept saying to himself, and I'm not trying to be as offensive as, he kept saying, damn it, why doesn't this work? He's pounded the F-150 steering wheel when he left to go to work. And he just couldn't figure out how to make it work. And at first he blamed himself, but you can only blame yourself so long before you begin to have a little self-justifying switch. This flips and goes, so this is your fault. If you were a different personality, if your mother hadn't poisoned the well, if, if, if you were more this, if you were that, and so you as a little girl or you as a little boy, you picked up on the fact that something's wrong with me, something's wrong in the dynamic and the relationship. My dad never really wanted to love me. That's not true. Your dad kept reaching into his backbone and pulling out an empty hand, and he didn't know what to do with it, and that's why love didn't occur well in your home when it didn't occur. There's a certain skill set that's required for love. Love makes demands on you. Love is intended to pinch your feet. Love, love requires that you be patient when you want to be patient. It requires that you be generous when you didn't always feel being generous. It requires that you be courageous when you didn't always want to be courageous and say what you ought to say. Love requires that you handle your anger in a classy way so that, yes, I have something that bothers me, but you're 100% safe in this conversation with me, and my anger is never an excuse to run over you. Love requires that I might decrease, that you might increase. Love requires that I love you enough to confront you and say, wow, you're too great of a kid, you're too great of a husband, you're too great of a wife, you're too much of a person for you to live this way, and, and I love you enough to confront you. Love requires wholeness. And the number one problem in marriages is not complex. We're just not whole when we go into them. Number one problem with dating, we're not whole enough to date. Number one issue, it's not hard. This is pretty simple. I, I, I could fix you some kind of dessert that would blow you out of the water for how good it is. That's what a good marriage and a good relationship is. But you let me half-bake it. You let me get ingredients that just aren't ready yet. Things that just haven't ripened enough. And let me serve that to you, and you go, it's not the same thing at all. So we start dating in junior high and high school, and we start dating in early years of college, and freshmen often show up on campus in this sudden freedom, and suddenly I've got a whole new circle, and they sort of jump on each other, and, 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 and we think it's natural. It's not, well, it is natural, but so is a train wreck. Wholeness. 
if I had more time, I'd put more humor in this at the first part. I, I, I know some humor things. I know some dad jokes. But I, I don't have the time. I want to remind you, trying hard is seldom the answer in life. Now, stay with me. Trying hard sure beats the heck out of not trying. But if you think you can date a guy or a girl, and we, we really do love and care for each other, and we're just going to try hard, and we can make it work, you're naive. There's a twinkle in my eye when I say this. Look at me. You give the highest motivation for running a marathon. Randy, if you could run 26.2 miles, never stop your running. Run the entire way. We'll end world hunger. Give me the highest motivation possible. Man, I'd want to, but do you think 26.2 miles from now, do you think I'm still running every single step? I'd try. Yeah, I know. You train to a marathon. You don't try. You'd be crazy to do this, but you walk up and say, you know, I got this little thing in my head, and I kind of need a brain surgery. Randy, you look trustworthy. Would you do my brain surgery? Yes, you do have something wrong with your head. <laughs> and if my answer is, I'll try, run to the hills. Why? Because trying hard won't do it. Now, let me train to it. Give me 11 years. Let me train to it. Yeah, we'll, we'll do fine. But I got to train to it. God ordained a period of singleness in your life for a purpose. Singleness is not, I mean, every single person has to have a wonderful season of singleness so that something gets accomplished in your life. It's God ordained. It has an intentional purpose. Singleness is not extended adolescence. Singleness is not primarily so that you can have a vocation and a career and an education. That is not its primary purpose. Now, it's going to fit in there, but that's not your primary purpose. Singleness is not a season you endure. Singleness is not, hey, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. Singleness has this concept that God designed because in order for you to be a blessing to anybody else's life, the blessing to a mate, a blessing to the children that you'll raise? You need to use your singleness for what it was intended to. You need to come to wholeness. That's absolutely what it's for. I hate the junior high dating. I hate the high school dating. I dated the same girl all four years through high school. Good girl. Good enough girl helped me, help me keep from cutting my own throat. But we were dumber and stumps. Because that's not what that period of singleness in my life was for. It took me a while to figure it out. This concept of singleness. All I can say to you over and over again. Just don't waste it. Grab your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs 25. It's the very last verse. Your English is actually going to give you a little bit of a mislead if you're not careful. 
Proverbs 25, 28, let me just kind of quote it to you. You'll have some kind of a, of, of, you know, a version of this. That a man without discipline, your Bible may say self-discipline. You need to know that the Hebrew word for discipline and the word for wholeness and the word for wisdom are very interchangeable words. This actually comes a little closer, if you actually want to put it, it's a little bit more along the idea of somebody who has wisdom or wholeness. Self-discipline is the right word, but it's, they, they weren't talking about whether you always fold your underwear carefully and whether your socks are always on the left side of your drawer. Now, this is a bigger picture. Proverbs 25, 28, that a man without discipline, wholeness or wisdom, is like a city without walls. What in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. I want you to picture two cities side by side. One city with walls and one city without. In both cities, they want the same things. They tuck their kids into bed at night and kiss them on the forehead. In both cities, they, they play t-ball in the backyard. In both cities, old men and women go for walks in the cool of the evening and even might even hold hands a little bit. In both cities, they take the, the fall wheat and put it in, in a bin so they can put it out next spring. In both cities, it looks the same. But there's a massive difference. The city with walls, come spring, the kids are still in the beds and going to schools and playing t-ball in the backyard and the winter wheat's still there and the old man and woman are planting tulips and the city without walls. The kids got carried off by raiders. Robbers killed grandpa. The winter wheat got stolen. Everything that mattered got pillaged. Now here's the thing you've got to hear about relationships. The most dangerous person on the face of the earth is not the scoundrel. What do you mean? You figure a scoundrel out pretty quickly. You, somebody who's a real snake, you get involved in their life, you figure that out and you back off. And honestly, the scoundrel won't do as much damage to you as you think because you don't give them access. The most dangerous man or woman on the face of the earth is the well-intentioned, likable, charismatic, fun individual who gets along well in life. They just have one problem. They lack wholeness. And so some girl will date some guy and he's likable and he's a good guy and, and he's funny and, and he's not a scoundrel and, and he loves me and, and she goes home with that guy but everything she cares about gets pillaged over the next 40 years because he doesn't have the ability to reach into his backbone and live out what his heart is asking him to do. He's always going to. He always means to. He always wants to. It's his intention. It's the guy that meets the, the girl, and she's fun, and she's funny, and she's sensitive, and she's kind, and all kinds of things. And she gives her attention to him, and that's pretty flattering. And he marries her. But he married a woman without walls. And he can't imagine why there's so much drama in his marriage. I'm not trying to be mean with this, but many of your parents, they wanted to love you deeply. 
They just didn't have walls. Your season of singleness is for a purpose. You've got to come to wholeness. That's why the book of Proverbs tells you to run from a foolish man, run from a foolish woman. Well, when we hear the word fool, we tend to go wicked. And it could be, without about that. But in the book of Proverbs, the fool is not necessarily a scoundrel or wicked. They're well-intentioned, likable, funny, good companions at some level, except for this issue. They don't have enough completion in their life to live out what they want to do. This is not a great insult. I love my grandchildren. I got eight of them on the ground and one on the way. I've got eighth grader, seventh grader, two sixth graders, a fourth grader, a first grader, a three-year-old, and a 20-month-old. And they are fools. Oh, don't, don't misunderstand me. Love them to death. They're funny, hilarious, delightful. They just lack wholeness. Marriage is for grown-ups. Marriage is for grown-ups. Do not get in relationships until you've accomplished the purpose of your singleness. Just bottom line. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien both wrote a great deal about love. Can I quote Tolkien to you? You'll always sound smarter if you quote C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Tolkien said, there are those individuals who say, but we are in love. And he said, and they mean it. He said, that is not significant except for this issue. It just now means that there are two people involved in the same shipwreck, not one. C.S. Lewis, he puts more the metaphor His metaphor is that you have a journey to take. Nobody can take that journey for you, and nobody can carry you on that journey. And that journey is one that you set your face to say, God, you made me in your image. You made me to be the shadow of the living God. This is who you are. I'm discovering who I am. During part of my life, I'm kind of like a shadow that got lost and tried to be a cow, and I wasn't a cow, and tried to be a tree, and I I tried to be all these things. But but God, I'm, I'm actually your shadow, and God, I want to learn how to walk with you. And you find that it's not a solitary journey that you are on, but is, in fact, it is a worshipful journey. And on that journey, you set your face, and he said, you and God have, have a place that you're headed to, which is this concept of wholeness. And as you journey, it begins, wholeness begins to accompany you. And wholeness comes along. Why don't we finish that journey? Because we're in a culture that lies to us. And the answer from our culture, for the most part, is if you don't feel whole, it's because you need somebody in your life, and on it goes. So what would wholeness look like? That's a bigger subject. I'd love to take the whole weekend with you and talk about wholeness. But can I hit just a few things that that would be pretty obvious for what wholeness are? Wholeness will be 
and by the way, these will come out of the Gospels. They'll come out of Proverbs. You're going to find them everywhere in Scripture. But, but wholeness is going to look like contentment, that you're comfortable in your own skin. That God, I may have struggled in junior high on why am I so skinny or why am I so heavy. I may have struggled in junior high. Why am I not funny? Why, why couldn't I be funny like that person? Why couldn't I be athletic? In, in junior high, you were scrambling around on all these dirt piles, trying to find one of them. You could be king on the hill. I'll be the funny kid in class today. I'll be the smart kid in class. I'll be the cool kid in class. I'll be the, you know. In junior high, was trying to put on personalities like you put on clothes. But at some point in time, you and God got to walk together long enough that not only are you content, and this is under my same point, I'm not giving you a second one yet, I'm actually grateful, God. Yeah, I'm a doofus like lots of people are doofuses, but God, I see your fingerprints all over my life, and God, I'm so grateful. And God, I trust you that you can use me, and I'm content being me. If there's a great restlessness in you, you still got more of the road to travel. Contentment. Here's the second one. You're going to think it same, sounds the same thing. It's not. It's happiness. Now stay with me. Happiness, when we don't have wholeness, has to be sort of borrowed from outside. Activities give us happiness. Other things. But happiness, when it actually comes from joy and almost a delight, and you can get up in the morning, and yeah, I got hard things I don't look forward to, but I can almost whistle and have a great deal of joy today. This, this is good. People who don't have their own happiness are borrowers. We, we lease it from other things. Man, we run from movie to movie, and we run activity to activity, and, and we're just almost like gerbils on a wheel trying to, there's a quietness, a contentment, and a joy. And the joy honestly comes from inside, not borrowed from the outside. I work with college kids at Ozark Christian College. Great place. Decide you want to transfer to Oklahoma State University, come hang out with me on my porch. I'd love to. By the way, my wife started at Oklahoma State. Um, she went one year there. Julie's the one you really want, by the way. She's one of my, my, my middle child's one time when she's about six years old, came up and said, Dad, how come you and Mom are so different? I said, what do you mean? Well, Mom's so fun. Yeah, I, I buy that. I'm the brown paper sack. Um, and I did. I, I'm telling you, I got one of the finest women I've ever met by far. I'm married over my head. People must have think I got her liquored up to marry me. I mean, this is just honestly. <sighs> but these kids come back at Ozark, and they're just like you. There's some great kids there. But they come back and go, how was your summer? Oh, it was horrible. I'm so glad to be back to school. Man, I was stuck with my family. I was stuck with a dead-end job. I was stuck in a place, and it was horrible. I just couldn't wait to get back. And well, What do you have to be grateful for for the summer? And what did you really delight in? Well, I guess we, we, we did go to the water park that time. And, and I'm going, okay. You don't, you don't get it yet. It's okay. It, it, but you've got to figure it out. 
because joy can't be borrowed and laughter and delight can't just always be something that you drop nine bucks at a movie for. It can't be ultimate frisbee. Just wag it up. I want you to delight in things. Don't misunderstand me. I, I built custom furniture for a hobby and then forced it on my family. <laughs> I delight in things. I'm as competitive. Oh, my goodness. It's so much fun. I like being a guy in my mid-60s beating college kids at racquetball. <laughs> Old men, no angles. Young men hit the ball hard, which doesn't help, you know, because we can just eat you alive with it. And so they all walk out going, you're kidding. I lost to an octogenarian. You know, how'd that happen? I, I want you to delight in things. But wholeness comes when you have contentment and when your joy and your laughter and your delight is not external. Joy, I mean, wholeness comes when your morals are unshakable. I don't care what the crowd says. I don't care how the wind blows. I don't care what the mood I'm even in. I know who the living God is, and I borrowed my morals from him, and, and his don't blow in the wind. That concept, if, 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 if your behavior, the way you talk, the way you act, if it, if it varies a little with the crowd you're in, if it varies a little in the mood you're in, wholeness is still the journey you're on. Wholeness, I mean, there's so many things I could, could give you, I guess, on that. Wholeness means you live well in community. That you live well with community. You don't have to be the most popular. You don't have to be the funniest. Your community doesn't have to hold you up and carry you on their shoulders. You, you, maybe you are funny, and, and it's a good thing, but, but you don't smell the perfume. You, you don't, I mean, you smell it, you don't drink it. My metaphor just got goofed up. You don't, you don't drink that perfume. You... And others of you, you're quite, but you have good friends that are peers. And they're not just friends, they're good godly friends. If you don't have the life skill of making peer friends, you still got more, more road to travel. Intergenerational friends. If you can't make intergenerational friends, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm way away from home and I'm, I'm, I'm in a college campus. No, no, you don't. You, you, in every environment, I need to be able to make peers, peer friends and, and intergenerational. I'm, I'm in my mid-60s. And if I don't find a way to invest in you and take good care of you and, and to become friends with you if we live in the same community, something's wrong with my own wholeness. The last one I'm going to give you just, this is not enough. You and responsibility are good friends. If you don't know how, if you've never learned how to, to do enough work to enjoy work, work is an acquired taste. You gotta do enough of it to learn to like it. I, uh, it took me forever to learn to drink coffee. I didn't like it. It tasted terrible. And I got stuck one place where there was nothing else to drink for about four days. I gagged it down. I was cold. I'm so stinking cold in Fairbanks, Alaska in February and all kinds of stuff, and, and I am cold. And the only hot thing that was around was coffee, and I just gritted my teeth. And about four days later, well, by golly, this stuff kind of grows on you a little, you know. Work is a little that way. You've got to do enough of it to learn to like it. Make your bed. Clean your car. Show up to class on time. 
Learn a skill so you can take care of a husband or a wife. Be reliable. If you're not somebody who's learned to be responsible, you, you don't have wholeness. Make your bed. Did I mention that one? Honestly. When I was irresponsible, I could justify anything for why I'm going to be in it again tonight. Good grief. Nobody's going to see it but me. What I didn't realize is it wasn't about the bed. It was about me. Changing the oil in the car wasn't about the car. It was about me. At some point in time, I've got to decide, am I going to embrace responsibility? I have enough of a jailhouse lawyer in me. My mother said my first two words in English were yes, but. And I would negotiate why I was irresponsible. Most of us do. I'm not unique on that. Anyhow, borrow those, run those through. Now, here's where I'm going to get a little more at you. You need to know that the culture has created, there are three models of love that are out there. These three models of love are so common in, your, in, in this culture. One of them is a one to three year marriage. It may last 50 years, but in one to three years, you've sucked all the life out of it. The second one is kind of a five to eight year marriage. It may last 50 years, but you've sucked the life out of it. Now, these two can become the real deal, but not without great travail and scars. And it's not easy to do, but you can. And your family will have a dark period in it as you did it. This is the one you want. This is a lifetime one. Our culture comes to immature people and says, here's a way that love works. And we jump all over it. You see... When you came into life, you came in horizontal when it, came, when it comes to wholeness. You didn't have your own contentment. That's why your mama walked you up and down hallways and sang to you and patted you. You didn't have your own happiness. That's why they had to keep you entertained a lot when you were a little kid. And we bought toys galore and all kinds of things. Because you can run through this whole series. And you borrowed from your parents. That's, that's how you were supposed to do. And nothing wrong with that. I'm not, there's no shot on this. Now, the goal in life is for you to stand on your own two feet and you and the living God to come to enough wholeness that you later on, if you choose, meet somebody and two whole people can choose because they can live out the claims that love requires. They can do the hard thing that love is. They can run the marathon. They can do the brain surgery. They can bring a little one into the world. They can be flawed, and, and the other one knows how to handle that period in your life that was so hard. They can do it for a lifetime. I'm not a poster child for anything. If anything, my wife probably married somebody who was leaning at some level. But Julie and I will be married 43 years in January, and it has been the most amazing, fun thing. I'm going to tell you, it has been an absolute blast. I would wish for you the kind of marriage we have had. Julie, I like to bring her on these things. Couldn't on this one. Sarah back there. Uh, Sarah has family in Honduras, an aunt and an uncle. Well, my wife is speaking in Honduras to a women's retreat down there this, this week. So my wife left me in the middle of last week to go have Spanish translators, you know, as she, as she did the women's conference. It's a grand adventure, but whole people 
make great relationships. Whole people make great dating relationships. But our culture doesn't do that. Our culture, you borrow from your parents, and then with a little bit of time, you start borrowing from adolescent friends. Nothing wrong with that either. That's why first grade girls, seven of them, go as an amoeba to the bathroom. <laughs> that's, that's what we do. We borrow. That's why birthday parties are such a big deal when you're in third grade. Wow, I got invited and we're there. So, woo, it's, 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 and it is a big deal. That's why boys, that's why boys look like such idiots when they're boys. You can take the finest boy who's five years old, nine years old, 13 years old. He is the greatest kid. I mean, here he is. I'll make him eight. I mean, he's the greatest eight-year-old kid you ever saw until his cousins from Denver came. And this kid's out shooting streetlights out with a BB gun with his cousins. And you're going, you hypocrite, you! No, he's not a hypocrite. He's an eight-year-old boy borrowing his morals. Honestly, some of you in this room, if you were running in a different circle, you'd behave differently because you're borrowing morals. We borrow from our parents. We borrow from adolescent friends. And then here's the part I hate. You've grown up in a culture that set a bear trap for you because our culture says, now you need to borrow from a boyfriend or girlfriend. And so you start borrowing. For some of you, it was in fifth and sixth grade you first started using that language. For some of you, it was junior high. For some of you, it was high school. And we borrow from a boyfriend or girlfriend, and we call it normal. No, it's not. That's how we get the 80% that we're getting. It's not normal. It's not right. We're a Ken and Barbie world. Ken and Barbie have been around so long, I'm not sure that your generation always knows it, except you've watched Andy, you know, and, and his boot, and Toy Story. We're a Ken and Barbie world. And the answer to life is, if, if I could just have someone, if I just had somebody who loved me, I'd be fine. I'm designed to love somebody. That's why I don't have anybody to love. That's, that's why I'm like, I'm, no. The number one drug in America is not meth or oxy or anything else. The number one drug isn't even alcohol. The number one drug in America is another person. And we use other people to fix what's not right with us. Number one reason that seniors in college will get married. Very simple. It's her senior year. She's been there four, five, six years. <laughs> and at some level, there's happiness. At some, but, but there's a discontent. There's a restlessness. I'm tired of sweet mates. I'm, I'm tired of just this process. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of having important people in my life come and go. I've been the bridesmaid at 23 straight weddings. And, 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 and some of my buddies from, you know, from high school, are, I'm, I'm holding their babies. And and I'm getting ready to go to a great big world. And, and it was one thing to run in the group, but I'm going to be going to Tahlequah, and, and I'm going to be living in some apartment with some job. And I'm not quite happy, but I would be happy if the right guy loved me. And there's some guy, he's, he's joked about everybody else biting the bullet, and he's been you know this independent guy, but he's kind of tired of just the whole dating routine. He's kind of di- tired of just the, the same game-type stuff. He's kind of tired of the routine. 
uh, you know, you can only do these things so long before they were out. And he's, I, I joke, he's tired of cleaning his own house every four months, you know, th those sort of things. And those two will find each other. I'm not happy, but I would be happy if the right girl loved me. And they don't say that out loud. And, and you'd be shocked how many things in your life you don't admit to yourself. It's far, far easier to keep things from yourself than it is to keep from somebody else. And so they have this internal sense of drive. They aren't even sure why, but they find each other. And they fall in love, and it feels like love. Don't misunderstand me. It feels like love. It feels like the real thing because the heart's involved. And they get married, and they spent 17000 on the wedding or whatever it is they did. But here's the problem. One to three years into that marriage, they're struggling. Because she wakes up one morning and realizes, he doesn't love me. He loves what a woman can do for him. He loves the sex. He loves the... The clean house, he loves the meals, he loves the sort of the social part of it. But truth is, he doesn't love me. It wouldn't matter if my name were Jane or Helen or Susie. He loves himself and he's using me because he kind of needs or wants somebody. And he's unhappy with me because I don't seem to meet his needs well enough. And no matter what I do, he's still moody and no matter what I do he has trouble and, and I've just busted my rear all last two weeks trying to and he doesn't even seem grateful all he did is pick the one thing I didn't do right and and she used to tell herself when she stood in the mirror in the morning and put her makeup on and her hair that I'm not quite happy but I would be happy if the right guy loved me and now she's putting her makeup on in the morning and combing her hair in the same language, I would be right, if, I would be okay if the right guy loved me. And this thing tumbles. Many of you, you were too innocent to know what was happening in the homes you grew up in. You weren't there when this thing played out. You only lived with the consequences a little later. But that's how they got there. That one takes me about 35 minutes to actually describe. It is the cheap high school romance. You, you can fill the blank in. I'm watching the clock. I'm going I'm to quit by 9, if, if you'll give me another four or five minutes. Well, apparently I'm going to take it. Um, I, why do Christian kids do it? You can imagine why the idiots do it. Why do Christian kids? You see, it's not just an external social pressure, and, and it is, by the way. I mean, you've been through a th thousands of hours of that kind of coaching. That is what Tangled is. That is what Ariel is. That is Beauty and the Beast. I'm, I'm not quite happy, and I'm kind of flawed, but if I had the right girl come into my life, and, and I... I don't want to be with Antler Guy, and I'm kind of my dad, and I'm, I'm really, really concerned, but if I could just find the right guy, and, and, and Beauty and the Beast find each other, and they fix each other's issues, and, and I mean, you've grown up with this. Isn't this how it works? On Disney it is. But it's not real. It's a prostituted love. I'll love you if you meet my needs well enough. 
And we do. We fall in love with them because they meet our needs so well. That has a shelf life of about that long. It can't keep happening. So, so why do... Apparently, I might be 901 now. Uh, so why do Christian kids do it? Three internal reasons. Fear. Why do you bail out? You're running along and saying, I want to I, I, I be mature. I want to have wholeness. I want God to do in my life what he wants me to do. I want to be prepared. I, want, I don't want to have unfinished business in my life when I love a husband or a wife. I, I, I want to be able to raise my kids where my kids have somebody who looks like they ought to look. And so you're running your race in your lane and somebody comes and cuts across in front of you. I don't mean by wreck. I did, and, and like a puppy, you go, woo, and you take off. You ever see a puppy? You know, I mean, chases. Why? For three reasons. Fear. One is, I'll get left out. Everybody's picking, everybody's matching up, and I'm going to miss the, I'll get left out. Fear. Oh, God. If I don't grab somebody, somebody doesn't grab me. Fear. Not just that, but fear of, man, i got to face the future, and I don't want to face it alone. I'd like to have somebody with me, somebody who believed in, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in two years or three years. I, and the thought of being alone is just terrifying. I don't know that I can handle the future. Fear. What does this say about me if nobody's asking me? Fear's a great internal driver. By the way, Guess what the Lord would love to do with you in your fear on this journey of wholeness? What do you think the companion of your soul would like to do? Second reason, pride. I want somebody for me. I want somebody in my orbit. I want somebody who thinks I'm important. I, I want somebody who's kind of a beck and call when I'm kind of lonely. I want somebody who gets me. I want somebody to tell me I'm wonderful. I want somebody, and arrogance is a key part of this. It's just the idea that, that I, I'm going to use a strong word, but we use dating and love as a bit of a substitute language for I use people. There's an awful lot of guys that use girls, and we're not talking to sex. They use girls because I'm kind of the center of my universe, and I'd kind of like to have somebody who circled it, orbited my universe. Just straight arrogance. There's an awful lot of girls that you figured out your power. Girl power's pushed out. I, I give a guy a little of attention, and they're like idiots. He'd follow me anywhere, and I kind of know. And so a little fear might be in there, but arrogance. Here's a third one. Lust. Clearly, you are in a pornographic world. This is a world that's almost like you were raised in a brothel. You've been so groomed. You know how pedophiles groom people? You're ever a bit as groomed. And some of you are so godly, and you have fought against that grooming, but that grooming has still been occurring. 
I don't mean you failed at it. I'm just telling you, man, you had to swim upstream. But grooming is what our culture has done. There's many, there's a lot of you girls. You've looked at porn and you go back to porn on a regular basis. There's something about it. You can't figure out exactly, but it's a little bit of empowering even watching the porn. And you say you're not going to do it and it's a disgusting habit. And, and well, you can't watch porn. You can't have lust that you don't have some sense of, I'd like to play with sensuality. You may not want some guy to have sex with you, but the very sensuality, you kind of want to play with it a little bit. What's good to have a car in the garage you can't take for a drive? For guys, there's no doubt about it. You've heard over and over and over again, you have a thirst drive, you have a food drive, and you have a sex drive, and those all fit together, and you know, I got food, and I got water, and I just have a sex drive, and, and, and it's a lie, by the way. Sex doesn't fit in those two. Sex does not fit in that two. That is part of the cultural lie. Obviously, there's some self-denial about I'd like to feel her breast. I would like to know what it's like to have the sensuality with a guy. So the sex side is here, but I'm about to throw you a curveball on this one. Lust normally doesn't come to you as lust. It comes to you as loneliness. I don't know why God designed us the way he did, but here's how he did design us. You can either have a relationship with a real person, or you can have a relationship with dots on a page, but you can't have both. You can have a relationship with a real person, or you can have a relationship with pixels, but you can't have both. And whenever lust occurs, and we begin to see people in a merchandising kind of way, in any way, shape, or form, a glass wall begins to come up against you and everybody else. You show me a husband who deals with pornography on a regular basis, that man lives with a glass between him and his wife and him and his own kids. He just does. You ever been to the hospital and try to touch somebody on the other side of the glass? It's there, but it's, you can't quite get there. And the wife can't quite figure her husband's heart out, and she craves to know his heart, and he craves to give his, wife, his heart to his wife, but you can't. You cannot do both. Lust makes you lonely. I, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I feel like I'm unattached. I, I feel like I'm just out here flailing and lust. Now, oh, this is really important. If I would forgot this, I'd have been sick about it. I woke up in the middle of the night and called up. Loneliness does not only come from lust. So, so I want you to make sure there are other sources from that. But, lone, but lust is a primary driver for loneliness. If I find a guy who's just more restless and he just needs somebody in his life, he doesn't think I need to be in their pants. What he thinks is I just, I, I just feel so disconnected. I just feel so disconnected. Lust has caused that. You lose the battle to lust and you have now imprisoned yourself for the rest of your life until you deal with that issue. I can't tell you how many men I've dealt with through the years who've said this. I missed even my kids' growing up years. I just, I, I, I don't know where those years went, but I never connected well with my kids. 
my wife and I, we were roommates, but I could never find her heart because the computer downstairs, the iPhone in his hand, the strip club on trips, the movies, it makes you lonely. Lusty people are the loneliest people on the face of the earth. Good news. Good news. None of that has to be you. But you've got to decide whether or not you want to take a journey of wholeness. There's a twinkle in my eye when I say this. I, I, I'd almost love to pick you up and go drop you on a deserted island and not go back and pick you up till you and the Lord have worked through this. But the truth is you're going to work through it in the middle of a bit of a chaotic world like Daniel, carried off in captivity. But it doesn't matter if you're in Babylon or not. This is who you could be. It's like Joseph, hated by his brothers and sold off. It's like the story of Esther. Nobody would choose her story. You can go on and on and on with this. Here's my point. Don't waste your singleness. And if you don't bail out, the next one's actually where I will use this pad. You have a journey down here that starts, first of all, with successful singleness. Up here is intimacy. I'm going to actually put from a Christian's perspective, I'm going to put marriage there, sex there, and I'm going to put intimacy here because intimacy tends to follow later in a marriage as, as you begin to figure out how to take good care of each other. Well, what happens on an arc principle is really simple. If you don't like where you are, you cut across. And so we put sex up here, honestly, and maybe you're a Christian and you say, no, I keep it where it goes, but you put another person up here and you fill this in and you skip all of the things that are in here and you say, well, that's not a big deal. I'll get that and we'll fill it back in. Oh, really? Oh, really? How many of you girls, when you put your makeup this morning on, afterwards went, oh, man, I skipped the foundation. I need to slide it back under. How many houses do you know of go, hey, we built the house. You know what? We ought to put a foundation on it under now. You know what a cyst is? It's pretty simple. It's part of the body that has an abscess or a hole. It's got something that didn't fill in. If you don't come to wholeness, your relationships will have a cyst. Are they repairable? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're just traumatic to do. It's a whole lot better to do it in the right order. This is a heavy, strong, I'm not giving you hope. Not a single one of you is going to walk out of here going, yes, sir, that was fun. <laughs> if anything, I'm trying to scare the bejeebers out of you. But I'm not exaggerating one thing. If you don't do something different than the neighbors do, you'll have what the neighbors have got. Tomorrow gets fun. Tomorrow there's a twinkle in God's eye, and he almost fist bumped the angels and goes, watch this. You show me somebody willing to follow me on the road to wholeness it is almost impossible for me to overstate how good it is at the other end. God bless.